The book is really an invitation to just sit with other people with the complexity of a really difficult story. And in many cases, there are components that give hope, but, but they're not the only parts of the story. So how do we hold the, the challenge, the violence, and, and the hope all at the same time? And it's, it's a juggling act for sure. And maybe that's why we need to be together because maybe one person can hold the hope and one person can hold the, the violence and the complexity. And, and to get, I mean, to me, that's what community is all about. That was Katie Zay, author of the brand new book called Women Rise Up, Sacred Stories for Today's Revolution. And in the words of our mutual friend, Erin Lane, she says about Katie, I don't know anyone who more seamlessly marries her scriptural imagination with an activist sensibility than Katie Zay. She's reliable, skilled, and thanks be to God, altogether human teacher who is not afraid to trouble the waters of some of our most beloved and forgotten readings of biblical women and their enduring witness in our modern lives. I think you're going to love this conversation I did with Katie, and then you're going to want to go out and buy her book called Women Rise Up, Sacred Stories for Today's Revolution. Enjoy. Hi, Katie. How are you today? I'm so good. I'm so glad to be talking with you today. Well, you know, our our mutual friend, Erin Lane, who I just love so much, uh, when she reached out, uh, I was like, yes, of course. But then when I read uh, some of your book, I just, Women Who Rise Up, Sacred Stories for Today's Revolution, I was like, oh my gosh, well... Uh, now I love you. <laughs> so Aww, that's very sweet. <laughs> um, so we're going to get into the book, and um, but first of all, I I want to I want to ask you about the, there's this phrase that you have right on the top of your website, and you say you're a compassionate pragmatist, and I <laughs> love plays of words that are sort of paradoxes, you know, hidden within themselves. And so, uh, you know, as before we get into the book, can you talk about what you mean by that, and you know, maybe describe a little bit of what you do, um, you know, for your work and all that stuff. Yes. Th- thank you for the question. So compassionate pragmatism is not something that we talk about, but for me, it's the compassion comes from loving people who want to change the world. I'm someone who's done a lot of social justice and activism work in my life. And I immediately connect with people who have a passion for changing the world for, for the good. And but I'm also a super practical person. I, I don't like to stay up in the clouds. I like to think, okay, you want to change the world. What's the first step that you're going to take? And so I try to combine those two things where I feel the heart and the head yeah. and help people kind of figure out like what are steps one, two, three, uh, when the work feels so overwhelming. So that's why I call myself the compassionate pragmatist. Well, and that's what I came to understand. I did a little, a little, you know, I went a couple more layers in to sort of what you do. And I thought that is such a helpful gift to people who really uh, do have sort of big ideas and are so compelled by the need for change and then find themselves usually really overwhelmed with the details mm-hmm. of, of what that happens. So I, what I take your passion to be is to sort of really understand someone's passion area, but then help them not get so overwhelmed with the the strategy of it. Is that, is that fair to say? Definitely. And the other part I help people do is 
share their vision really clearly with people they want to join them. Because I think sometimes the overwhelm starts to seep into how people talk about the work that they do. And it it can lack some clarity. And I think it's so important when we're trying to get other people to join us or to fund our work or find partners, we have to be really crystal clear about what it is we're trying to do so that other people can say, yes, I want to join you and I want to help you in this way. Oh, that's so helpful. And I, I absolutely resonate with that. You know, even like when it, you know, sometimes like, well, what's your, what's your book about? And you're kind of like, well, I know I've done my proposal and everything, but ah, yeah. you know, like what, how do I say it in 30 seconds? That's um, right. The elevator pitch. It's always the toughest thing. It is hard. And so to get someone like you who really knows how to listen well uh, and advocate really for sort of the, the person that's doing the work by helping them clarify the, the, how they talk about it is such a gift. So, yay. Um, well, let's let's get into your book. And I want to ask, you write in the introduction right away about your about your grandmother, Honey. Honey, right? yes. And honey. So, I mean, so that's what everyone called her, Honey? Yes, my oldest brother overheard my grandfather, who I call granddad, oh. call my grandmother Honey. And so he started calling her Honey, and that just became her grandmother name. Oh, my gosh, that's so sweet. Yeah, it is. Well, it becomes really clear really quickly that she was a big influence on you. You respected her and loved her. Could you just talk about her a little bit and what you saw in her and sort of who she was and how she was in the world that that made you um, love her the way you did? Yeah, I was fortunate. Even though my grandmother passed away when I was nine, we did live in the same town when I was growing up. And so in my early years as a child, got to spend a lot of time with her. She was the kind of grandmother when I would come over, she always had a candy bar in the drawer waiting for me, always made me feel really special. Um, Growing up with older brothers, it was always a treat to have solo time with Honey and and just be kind of spoiled in the way that grandmothers do. Um, But she also was the person who introduced me to church. Um, My parents did not take my brothers and me to church growing up. They both came from pretty fundamentalist kind of backgrounds. And so when my grandmother got terminally ill with cancer, she felt compelled to return to church. And I don't quite remember how I ended up there, but spending time with her was such a luxury and such a treat that I was willing to sit in the pews (laughs) and listen to sermons and all of that as a seven, eight-year-old child. And so she really was my introduction to to faith. I talk about in the book how when I was a little younger than that, she actually bought me a children's Bible and I was kind of like, what is this for? But it became a prized possession, you know, after she died and as I was getting more familiar with the stories. And I think the gift that that I had was the Bible stories were not things that were shared at home. So I really got to explore them on my own and claim my faith as my own. And I really I really am grateful to my grandmother for being that like very gentle entry point into faith. Being part of a faith community is something that was um, voluntary for me. And so after she passed away, um, I wanted to stay part of that faith tradition. I wanted to stay part of the sacred stories that I'd started to fall in love with. And so it was a way for me to stay connected with her. Obviously my faith evolved over time, but again, she was always that connecting point um, for how I got, you know, started on, on my faith journey. And so for that, I'm very grateful. She was a a tiny person. Um, she was a fantastic golfer. 
Um, and in fact, her, yeah, she really was. Um, we used to go out to the golf course together some. She let me ride the golf cart. That was always exciting. Nice. <laughs> nice. But um, yeah, just kind of a Southern woman from Alabama, but then, you know, this great golfer, like not something you would expect necessarily. Um, and she was just a very sweet and humble person. Um, but like I said earlier, who always made me feel like I was the most important person in the room mm. when we were together. Wow. Gosh. So, I mean, I just think it's so interesting when, you know, you have a gift like a grandmother who is loving and present and non um you know, sort of non-forcing the, like, like mm -hmm. to say that it was voluntary. Um, and she just was there. And, and I think I read after she passed, didn't, didn't you sort of adopt her? There was a red notebook or a red Bible or something of hers yes. that you, I kept it. Yeah. yeah. That you, was that a Bible or a, or a journal or what was that? It was, I think it was a selection of texts. I don't think it was the full Bible, but it, it gave me enough because mm -hmm. I, I, my family didn't have a Bible in our household. Right. So that was the, the closest thing that I had. And um, yeah, it belonged to her. And that was really where I started to learn more about who Jesus was and what his life and death were like. And I was really transfixed as a young child. I just mm -hmm. found the whole thing really fascinating. And um, I can remember at nighttime, when I was supposed to have my lights out, I would take my little alarm clock that had a light and I would stick it under my chin. <laughs> and I would, I would read this book, you know, um, with really dim lighting. And um, I don't know, I guess it felt sort of not forbidden, but because it wasn't part of my family culture, it felt like it was very foreign to me. And so yeah. I think I was, I was drawn to it in a way that maybe kids who are surrounded by the stories of the Bible wouldn't be. Right. Well, I think, you know, the, the further I read, the more I understand and even just understanding some of the work that you've done in your vocation, you seem to be really a naturally curious person who asks a lot of questions and who, for whom understanding the big picture seems to be very important. Um, so then, so your, your grandmother passes, honey passes away and you somehow stay in the church but then you start asking questions. Um, and I understand it's an evangelical church culture. And so can mm -hmm. you start to start to explain sort of that process and what questions you started having and, and how you were responded to? Yeah. So I uh, found my way to youth group in the sixth grade, thanks to um, a really good, a really good friend of mine who remains a good friend. Um, she was a way for me to get reconnected back to a faith tradition after I kind of lost connection with the one where my grandmother had attended and um, really started reading the Bible in a serious way, probably in high school. And I would say, I would say early on, it was actually really positive. I did um, the disciple Bible study, which I don't know if you've done that or familiar, familiar with, with it. No. Um, I don't, I think it's United Methodist, which is the, the faith tradition I was part of at the time, but it really was actually a, a very good, intense way of reading the Bible where we weren't just reading out of the same passages over and over again, but we were reading you know, most of the books of the Bible, at least part of them. Yeah. So that was my first introduction. And I don't remember having a whole lot of questions that early, but what I was also exposed to at the same time that this Bible, intense Bible study was happening were a lot of the kind of purity culture yeah. things around gender and how um, 
boys were supposed to be and how girls were supposed to be. And while I don't think that those were necessarily linked scripturally, I was getting those messages at the same place where I was studying the Bible. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah. And then as I got a little bit older into high school and started questioning some of the the practices of the church, uh, namely the exclusion of women um, from preaching and from being ministers, that was where I started to feel some of that pushback um, from female leadership around what it, what it meant to be a godly woman. And it became really clear that those kinds of questions were not tolerated or entertained in any kind of way. And so started to feel shut down in my questioning, but also didn't want to lose right. connection with the faith community that had provided so much um, just community for me, you know, relationships. And I talk about, I don't think I talk about this in the book, but youth group was kind of the place I could act out as a child because mm-hmm. my family wasn't involved and I was a really well-behaved kid for the most part. And so church was a place where I could kind of be like, a little bit bad. You know, I could kind of like push the limits, like maybe be a little disrespectful or mouthy every now and then knowing it wasn't good. So I kind of rebelled there very, very in a minor way, but, um, it was kind of a place for me to experiment, I guess. So, um, but it became clear, you know, what was appropriate and what wasn't. And my questions were definitely not appropriate. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, so, so I, I mean, I'm just really curious, Katie, because your, your family clearly is not, motivating you to stay, you know, connected to God through church or through reading the Bible or, uh, and you know, your grandmother's past and certainly you, you would have made connections at youth group and such, but, 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 but what do you, what do you, what do you think? Like, why did you stay? Why did you stay in it? In it, meaning the faith in it, meaning, you know, your curiosity, your questioning, what, what kept you in it? I think that the answer to that question changed over time. I think it started again with that connection to my grandmother. It evolved into friendships and community and a a place to hang out and go. Um, Then it became about a very narrow understanding of what it meant to be a person of faith required me to attend and to participate in certain ways. So there was like definitely some guilt involved or, um, like rule following, which Mm -hmm. I'm usually someone who abides by rules. And so I just felt like, okay, if I fall in line, if I follow these rules, then, um, then I'm a good, I'm a good Christian, quote unquote, good Christian. And so I think it became about rule following for a while. Um, and then why I stayed after that in terms of rebelling and not really knowing where my place was. I mean, I really credit that to the grace of God that, I, I just feel like my faith can't let me go. And hmm. it was a couple of years ago I heard from someone who was part of this evangelical community I grew up in in uh, my adolescence who felt compelled to reach out to me for reasons we don't need to go into. But she asked me, as I was sharing with her about my work, she said, have you, have you lost your faith? Hmm. And I remember thinking, faith is not something that I get to lose or, or gain. Hmm. Like, I feel like it's a it's like a gift that I have and I didn't earn it. It's, it's just part of me and it's not about anything that I do. I just feel like it's there. So, um, and that way I feel like it just became just, it was just part of me. Yeah. Wow. So you went to divinity school and then, but you didn't end up working in the church. You joined a faith-based advocacy, um, organization for women and girls. Mm-hmm. Um, did you, 
is that what you always wanted to do? Did you sort of fall into that? How did you get into that work? Advocacy was not something I even knew was a thing okay. uh, growing up. I mean, it was not part of the culture in which I grew up. I grew up in a small town in the South, and it, it probably was happening around me, but I didn't know anyone who was doing that explicitly. And so I didn't really even know that you know, moving to Washington, D.C. and talking about public policy and talking about my faith was a, was a thing that I could do. Yeah. And so I, I wouldn't say it was something I always thought I would do, but once I knew it existed, I felt like, oh, now I feel seen. Now I know that there's a place for me that doesn't look like these other very distinctive paths that I thought I would take. But here, here's one that I didn't know existed and is a good fit for me. Wow. So you got into that. And how long were you working at that particular nonprofit? Or was it a nonprofit? I assume it was. Yeah, I actually was working for, I was working for an agency of the United Methodist Church, but it was the public policy and advocacy arm of the church. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a church in the sense of like show up on Sunday mornings, but it was part of the denomination. And I worked there for, I think it was six six years, okay. six or seven, somewhere around there. I kind of lose track of time, okay. but somewhere around there, um, from my, from my mid twenties until my early thirties. Okay. Well, your book, Women Rise Up, Sacred Stories for Today's Revolution is clearly, um, informed, I think by that work, uh, at Absolutely. least as I, yeah, as I read it. So, um, what, what led you to write this book? Some of the writing came out of this need that I discovered as I was doing advocacy work out in faith communities where I was talking about really serious gender injustice issues, um, namely around maternal health, which is connected with domestic violence, human trafficking, like a number of things. And I would go and share these really stark statistics with people. And they would definitely be in agreement with me that it shouldn't be that way. But in terms of giving them something to hold on to that would inspire them to take action, I was really lacking that because mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't have anything to offer them that was hopeful, really. Yeah. yeah. And so it it forced me, or I don't know if forced me is the right word, but I felt compelled to return to the scriptures in a different kind of way and to look for instances in which there were times when a woman faced a very similar experience to what a woman might face today in terms of a, of a birth outcome and talk about that story within the faith community and, and share, look, a lot of the same injustices that we're talking about today, they are thousands of years old. They're not any different. Um, and that should, that should, make us want to take action because there are a lot more advancements in terms of medicine and things like that. But it should also inspire us as we see women who were able to overcome great odds, um, even in the oppressive environments that they were living in. And, and, And the first assignment that really forced me to read this way was I was asked to write something about Advent. And I thought, Why would I write anything new (laughs) about the nativity story? I mean, can you imagine anything new coming from the story? Everyone has written about it. And I I found Mary, the mother of Jesus, to be like really problematic in how she's interpreted um, in in the tradition. I'm like, oh, the last thing I want to do is write about Mary, the mother of Jesus. But 
this is when God is so funny because as I was reading it, reflecting on it and thinking about maternal mortality, I thought the real miracle of the nativity story or the first miracle is that Mary survived the birth experience. Yes. Right? Like we don't talk about that. No, she never. Never. She was an immigrant. She was in an environment that we don't know the details of, but she was not in her home. She might have been unattended. She was in a space not conducive to birth. I mean, she could have gotten an infection. Mm -hmm. um, she could have hemorrhaged. Like all of those things didn't happen. And she was able to parent Jesus and shape his ministry well into his adulthood. Oh, yeah. And I just felt like, oh, that's it. That's the nugget. It's, hmm. it's the miracle of Mary's survival. And that kind of sent me on a path of looking for other stories, not just about maternal mortality, although there are others about that, but a number of things to go, how can I connect these issues of today with our, with our sacred stories? Because it gives people a language to use when they're doing their own advocacy work. And it helps connect the sacred stories to their own stories yeah. and to the stories of people they know. Oh my gosh, that's so good. I, um, there, I have a friend that's a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, and he says one of the most interesting ways to look at the scriptures is to think that, yes, they happened, but that they're still happening mm -hmm. and that they will happen, you know? Mm, and so that's good. Like, we can find our own stories within them, not to... Not to solve the minutia, not to, you know, not to uh, genie in the bottle and, you know, but to say, oh, my goodness, like, I'm not alone. I, th I, this is not the first person who, who has struggled with this. That's um, right. And I think that's what I hear you saying. And I just, I agree with it 100%. Um, so as, so you write about Hagar, Rachel. Uh, the Exodus midwives are some of my favorite characters mm -hmm. in all the scriptures. Uh, They're amazing. Pua and, and Shipra, is that, is, are those mm -hmm. their names? Yeah. Uh, and Ruth and, and others, Mary, you already mentioned. So as you begin to really sort of intentionally look at stories with the lens that you just provided, what were some of the things that you saw uh, and feel free to tell, you know, like stories of like excerpts from your writing on Hagar or Ruth or whatever. But uh, what did you start to see? Like, were there patterns or um, uh, like talk about your process of, of, of discovery? Yeah, it's it, that's a really good question. I think there are some really explicit patterns that we see between stories. So in the and I'll try to say this quickly, but in the story of of Hagar and who, who was called at the time Sarai or Sarah, mm -hmm. um, there's a parallel to Rachel and mm -hmm. Leah, um, because in both of those stories, there is jealousy around um, someone being pregnant and someone who's experiencing infertility. Mm -hmm. And there is a pattern of a woman coercing another woman into forced marriage mm -hmm. and forced surrogacy um, to kind of compensate for her own um, feelings of inadequacy because women's worth was in their womb and what they could produce. And so yeah. in those stories, I thought, oh my goodness, I mean, a lot of work has been done, um, namely by Dolores Williams, a womanist theologian, around the story of Hagar and Sarai. But I had never really heard the parallel talked about with the with the Rachel and Leah story, that yeah. they're, they're both coercing their midwives, or not their midwives, their um, kind of handmaidens or slaves into forced pregnancy. So that that is definitely a theme that was... Um, 
not surprising, but I was, I was surprised by how similar those stories were. Um, and I, I think when I entered this project, what I was really hoping for, I guess, in my, in my humanness was what are the stories that we can really champion Mm -hmm. and, and talk about as here are the, the heroines of our faith. But for the most part, they all have, they're all fully human. Um, they all are flawed and, and it's, I had to resist villainizing Mm -hmm. or putting them on a pedestal because even when the stories were quite short, I I could read between the lines and see the complexity there. Mm -hmm. And so I had to really carefully walk a fine line of critiquing and holding with compassion these women's lives, which, I mean, that's what I would want for my own life too, right? I don't want to be treated fully as a fully human person. And one story that I... I have struggled with and would love to hear your thoughts if you have them is about Ruth and Naomi, because mm-hmm. it's one of the few stories that we have. Um, well, I guess another one that I really love is, is Mary and Elizabeth and we can talk oh, about that later, yeah. but it's a beautiful exchange between women, but in Ruth and Naomi, I mean, there's this whole, you know, where you go, I will go. And um, your gods will be my gods and where you die, I will die. And it's like, it sounds like the solidarity of sisterhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more I got into it, I thought this is really like an act of desperation or could mm-hmm. be read as an act of desperation. Like I must go with you, even when you tell me not to. Um, and then there's the whole Ruth, Naomi, Boaz triangle yeah. um, where Naomi is pushing Ruth into a really unsafe mm-hmm. situation um, where B- Boaz is, is drunk and she right. sends him to, she sends her to, you know, lay at his feet and we can all read between the lines what happens. And I think sometimes like folks don't want to read that in a very innocent way. And I just feel like that's kind of shortchanging the scripture. Right. So we can, can we celebrate their sisterhood and also critique the power dynamics at play? And that's um, because I, because I think sometimes with, with women's empowerment specifically, there's this, um, we forget about how power can corrupt anyone, no yeah. matter gender, race, sexual orientation, social location. And and there is corruption of power that happens among the women in our text too. And I think it's really important that we don't let them off the hook. Oh man, that's so, I think that's so important to notice. And I think, I mean, you're, you're one of the, actually one of the first people I've, I've heard to, even between Ruth and Naomi to, to sort of call that, like, that's not totally this pure, <laughs> you know, oh, I right. It's a fairy tale. Yeah. There, there's actually some manipulation probably in there and some, and some absolute, like, where else is she going to go? I mean, she's going to, she's going to go, you know, but, but, but was that a pure mm-hmm. proclamation of faith? Probably not. And, and, right. and certainly that moment, um, you know, a veiled, <laughs> not even veiled. I mean, the language is pretty clear about what, what right. Ruth is doing with, with Boaz between his feet slash legs. Um, right. right. And we so quickly romanticize that on, on all sides, you know, from Naomi's side, from Ruth's side, from Boaz's side. Mm-hmm. But I, but I think, I think what you're getting at is compelling to me because we are like that. I mean, we right. we are humans and we are we can't there's nothing heroic about our faith either and we're we have mixed motivations and so I find some bizarre solace in that sort of. I mean, I do, do you? Too. Yeah. Yeah, no, I do and I I think 
again, allowing these stories to be fully human, mm-hmm. to, to read ourselves into them or stories that we know, I think allows us to be more compassionate and also advocate for being better mm-hmm. in the future. Like, can we talk about how power corrupts in these stories and in our own lives? And um, I think because sometimes the stories are so short, we read them very quickly. And I think there has to be a pausing that happens, which I hope is what my book will help us all do is like, can we pause on this very short excerpt and really think about what all the possibilities are? Doesn't mean you have to agree. It doesn't mean we have to be in of one mind, but the fact that there were a lot of different dynamics going on at the same time, just like they are, as you said, in our own lives. And that, that, that should provide a solace and some accountability for us. Yes. So how, I, I love that. So how, how would you and you've already answered it partly, but sort of go anywhere further if you'd like to. But how would you encourage people to read the Bible, especially when when we encounter some of this gruesome violence and women being treated so terribly or even treating other women terribly? Um, I think the tendency is just to skip right by it and, and not even notice that it's really there, especially when you say when it's really short. Mm-hmm. But but when we do when we do say, oof. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How would you, uh, yeah, how would you suggest that we uh, stop, pause, like let that in? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think this goes to more than just reading scripture, but yeah. is there, how do we create space to sit in the discomfort mm-hmm. and realize there are questions that I can't answer, that we can't answer mm-hmm. about these stories that will make us feel better because in doing that with these stories, I hope then we create space in our faith communities for that same kind of discomfort to yeah. just sit with really complex situations mm-hmm. um, and not and not dismiss them or ignore them or forget about them, but really hold the complexity and find a way to move through it. And that's not an easy answer. It's one that I need for myself too, but the book is really an invitation to just sit with other people, with the complexity of a really difficult story. And in many cases, there are components that give hope, yeah. but, but they're not the only parts of the story. Right. So how do we hold the, the challenge, the violence, and, and the hope all at the same time? And it's, it's a juggling act for right. sure. And maybe that's why we need to be together, because maybe one person can hold the hope and one person can hold the the violence and the complexity and and to get I mean to me that's what community is all about. Oh yeah. I love that. And our our friend Aaron would would agree big time Aaron Lane. I yes. think um <laughs> no but I think um you know without resorting to yeah I, I having been in the church my whole life one of the things that I lament is when people are faced with something that they don't know how to answer but they feel compelled to give an answer versus just being silent, you know, or, or saying, I'm so sorry, you know, like, so right. what, what ends up coming out? And I don't, I really don't think most people mean to be dismissive when they give Mm-mm. a cliche answer. I just think they don't know what to do. I think they're, they're right. they, you know, if they aren't given some instruction on how to hold tension without trying to solve it, you're, you're, you're gonna say something that, that is not going to help. Um, so I, I like what you're saying here about um, reading and, and recognizing when you feel um, 
like, ooh, and not moving past that too quickly, right? Actually sitting mm-hmm. with that. I mean, and like you, like you would do with your own life if you make a mistake and you go, oh, man, I, I need to look at that, actually. Yeah, um, yeah. So, and can yeah. these stories be a guide for us now in, in doing it differently where we don't dismiss the difficulty or don't give the cliche answer because we are a little bit distant from the stories. And so maybe that provides kind of a playground for us, uh, for lack of a better phrase, to just experiment with how do we, how do we work through really complex, difficult situations and not just walk away from them or write them off or give a really simple answer. Like one of the things I talk about is I've brought up the the Hagar and Sarai story before in group settings. And it's like, well, that was just, that was just how things were, (laughs) you know, like, well, that's how things are. And are you okay with that? Right. right. (laughs) Hopefully not. (laughs) My gosh. Yeah. Um, Have you, uh, so have you heard of Sandy Sasso? She's a, Mm -mm. she, so she's a Jewish rabbi. She is retired now, but she's written a bunch on Midrash. And so, um, you know, Midrash is this sort of imaginative uh, way of trying to make sense of really, really troubling parts of the Bible. And so she does a Midrash on um, on Cain and Abel. And she asks the question, why does God not accept Cain's offering? You know, mm-hmm. and people answer how they answer. Well, it wasn't his first roots or well, whatever, whatever. And then everyone answers what they answer. And then she answers, you know, the Bible never says why. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I remember her saying that story and I remember going, oh my gosh, that must be true. But I'd never noticed that, that it, it really doesn't, it really doesn't say. And so yes. she interprets, she goes, you know, Cain and Abel can mean a lot of things. And it certainly, it, it contains it, that gruesome story contains many, many meanings. But one of them is the question from Cain's perspective what will you do when you feel like you're treated unfairly, even by mm. God? How will mm. you respond? Wow. You know, and that that's just, good. right, for me, and that's what I hear you doing with these stories of Hagar and Ruth and other, like, like let's take it three or four or five or six layers deeper. And let's, let's ask, let's, let's sit with the real questions here, because there's more than one, and there's more than one way to interpret each of these stories. And there's mm-hmm. more than one thing to learn from each of these things, right? And so mm-hmm. um, I, I love the curiosity and intentionality you, you come at these stories with. Uh, it's mm. so good. Thank you. Okay, just maybe one or two more questions. I know we're running out of time, but um, when we were talking beforehand, before we press record, you you mentioned that in addition to having just released this book, uh, Women Rise Up, Sacred Stories for Today's Revolution, you've also changed jobs and moved houses. <laughs> yes. So, you know, for anyone who's just about to release something into the world or just having started, like, talk, I mean, and, and you said you were feeling a little bit like, ah. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about that. Would you like l- let us into the, some of your own humanity in this moment? Well, earlier today, I was lying on my carpet floor crying. <laughs> oh, yep. <laughs> and um, I, not to be too cheesy and like returning to my book, but I write a chapter on Hannah yeah. and her being in the temple and how she is just letting it all go. I mean, mm-hmm. she is she is full of grief and she goes to the temple to lay her bare her soul basically to God and, and the temple priest 
Eli, you know, accuses her of being drunk. And I thought if someone saw me right now, they would probably also think I was having some kind of fit. But I think like allowing the vulnerability to come and, and also, um, for me, it's been a real exercise and just saying, I really cannot, I can't control everything. And I would love to be spending all of my time, you know, with doing interviews like this one, talking about my book, but that's just not the reality. Right. Um, and I have, I have a job that's based in DC where I'm traveling every week. Um, we just moved home, starting trying to get settled, have a four-year-old, a husband, like there's so much going on and I'm having to, um, to quote Tiffany, uh, Tiffany Dufu's book. I mean, I have to drop the ball. Like yeah. there are just some things that are getting dropped and my prayers have become like, God, can you please pick up some of this for me? And maybe remind me that it's not always about how hard I work or my effort. And maybe that whatever I'm working on, like there will be something else um, helping orchestrate it. Like it doesn't always have to be me just grinding it out all of the time. Um, and this has really tested my limits. And and I think about like, what will the learning be? And I think it's what I just said is yeah. sometimes it's not about how much effort you put in. Um, maybe, maybe there's some grace there, you know, that'll carry yeah. the rest. So I'm, I'm trying to lo- kind of lean into that and also just being accepting of myself and how I'm feeling and, and try not to add that layer of judgment yeah. onto, onto what I should be doing. Um, because should is the most, um, that's oh, yeah. like putting yourself into a prison. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks for describing that with that layer of, you know, detail and, and vulnerability, because I think we've all, well, we've certainly not all been in your exact shoes, but we've, I have experienced similar moments where you, where you do like, yeah, permission to drop the ball and, and you actually have to give yourself mm-hmm. permission to drop some balls mm-hmm. and to be gentle with yourself. Um, and even to celebrate like, you know, this book, Katie, that you worked so hard on is in the world. Um, and there's a celebration to be had about that too. You know, like I think it's yeah. easy to, well, for me anyway, it's like, well, how's it going to do or blah, 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 mm-hmm. you know, move versus, on to the yeah. next thing, the next project. <laughs> versus like, Oh my gosh, you, wrote a book and put it out in the world. And that is one of the greatest gifts and it's, and it's a good gift. Um, and so number one, thank you for doing it. Um, number two, if people want to get in, like people want to buy the book, if people want to get in touch with some of what you do, what's the best place to go? Is it your website or somewhere else? Yes. You can go to katiesa.com. And my book is available on Amazon, both in paperback and Kindle edition. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Katie Zay. Okay. I will put all of those links on the show notes. So uh, if you didn't catch that right away, you can go to the show notes. But Katie Zay is K-A-T-E-Y-Z-E-H. So that's... Twitter and Instagram, and also your website, correct? That's correct. And one last thing, if you do buy the book and you're hoping to have a discussion with folks, there's a free discussion guide on my website. Website, If you go to katiezay.com and go to book, you'll find it there. Mm-hmm. It's free to download. Mm-hmm. Well, that's helpful. Way yeah. to go. 
Now, was that your idea or was it the publisher's idea? Is that, you know, if you did a, if you did a discussion that, guide, it really. That was Aaron Lane's oh, idea. Course. It all comes back around to Aaron yeah. and her amazingness. <laughs> so many good ideas. So many That's good right. ideas. Well, Katie, thanks so much for coming on. This was so fun. And um, I love hearing some of how you think in, in your process. And I feel like it feels expansive, um, mm. like it's getting bigger. And in this day and age, that is a huge need in the world instead of getting smaller and retreating to our to our corners or to our, you know, poles, <laughs> to our binary, <laughs> binary dualistic poles. Um, That's right. I hear something bigger in you. So thank you for that. Well, thank you, Steve. Um, thank you so much for having me and for all of your really thoughtful questions and, and engaging dialogue. It's been a real joy. Well, I am cheering you on and I will share um, widely uh, or as wide as I can anyway about, um, <laughs> about, about your wonderful work. So thanks, Katie. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook. Uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.